Welcome to Bottled Petrichor, a podcast dedicated to discussing key topics in Islamic history and thought. In addition to a short lecture at the start of most episodes, we ask our guest experts questions submitted by listeners and allow them to share their thoughts in a safe environment. Please visit our Twitter page for feedback and question submission forms. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy. We are joined today by um, a very uh, esteemed guest, uh, Amir Bashir. So I wanted to start off and ask you a bit about yourself. Thank you very much for having me. Um, so in terms of my own background, um, I have a kind of an unusual academic uh, history. I started off in engineering, undergrad and master's, um, and then I switched to Islamic studies at the age of 25. And so I first started with uh, a madrasa. Um, it was located in Buffalo. I studied there for a couple of years. Then I finished in Pakistan. Uh, and after that, I went to the Islamic University in Malaysia. I did a master's there. And then I came back to the U.S. and taught at the uh, Buffalo Madrasa. And then I joined the Secular Academy. So in total, I spent about 10 years in theological Islamic studies, both as a student and as a teacher. Uh, that included a Shahadat al-Alamiyah from the, uh, the Madrasa system. And also included an MA from the Islamic University in Malaysia. <clears throat> and currently, I'm doing a PhD at the University of Chicago. Um... Yeah. Thank you so much. It's an incredibly uh, impressive background. And I think at some point we're going to come back to it, okay. especially because um, I was wondering, and I'm sure many of our listeners, uh, whoever they are, uh, would be very interested in knowing the differences between studying Islam in the madrasa system versus studying Islam in a secular system, uh, the benefits of each, and right, um, right. Or if any <clears throat> preconceived notions either by either the Orientalists, as they're so-called, or uh, people on madrasa, if there are any of those notions are justified uh, and because you obviously have right, a lot right. more experience than most people right. uh, your opinion I think matters the most so uh, I would like to start off requesting a short lecture I guess on the on Islamic law its development right. and its background so um, right so Islamic law is to begin with we have to keep in mind Islamic law is not an indigenous term so Islamic law is not a term that appeared within the Islamic civilization it is a term used by outsiders to describe something which they can't quite put their fingers on. So in the case of uh, Muslims themselves, the term they use is either Sharia or Fiqh. But we also have other terms like Usul al-Fiqh, Qawaid Fiqhiya, and so on. And in that sense, Islamic law becomes something which is accessible because people can actually relate to it. Most Muslims today grow up in, uh, in societies that have been heavily shaped by modernity. And so law is something that we can easily relate to. One way of looking at Islamic law is by talking of... Uh, the three dimensions of Islam. In the famous hadith of Jibreel alayhi salam, uh, the Prophet was asked questions, what is Iman, what is Islam, what is Ihsan? So Iman is the set of beliefs that every Muslim believes in. Ihsan is the field of spirituality. And Islam is everything else. And in that sense, Islam, that part of Islam uh, refers to the outward actions that a person performs with their limbs. And so it is... Uh, it basically permeates everything that a Muslim does, even to the extent of theology and spirituality, you will find aspects of Islamic law playing a role there. But in simple terms, Islamic law is something which is concerned with the outward action that a person performs. Now, Islamic law in terms of its uh, development, it started with the Quran itself. As you know, uh, Muslims believe in the Quran as the revelation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but it is the recited revelation. The sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ is the unrecited revelation. So the source of Islamic law is Qur'an and sunnah. Now from these two, other uh, sources emerge. Those other sources are uh, sources such as Qiyas, sources such as Istihsan, Istishab, and a whole range of other sources that scholars disagree about. But the two main sources are Qur'an and sunnah. And if you could just give a brief um, translation of Istihsan and uh, any other... So Qiyas is analogical reasoning. Uh, istihsan is this idea that you go beyond what is immediately visible. So scholars will differentiate between Qiyas Khafi and Qiyas Jali. So Qiyas Jali is the sum that is clear-cut Qiyas. But Qiyas Khafi is something which requires further uh, thinking. So Istihsan is one of those things which goes beyond what is immediately visible to a jurist. A good example of Istihsan is also something which is found in the Maliki school, which is that of Maslaha. So for example, uh, the law requires a certain ruling. But because of maslaha, the ruling changes. So for example, Muslims are required to follow the example of the Prophet ﷺ. But when the Prophet left this world, he did not leave us with a single book between two covers. 
He left us with the Quran, but the Quran was split all over the place. It was written on different things, parchments, on pieces of bones, and so on. Sayyidina Abu Bakr, he brought together the Quran in one mushaf, in one book, in the form of a physical book. That was a form of istihsan, something that the Prophet had not done, but Sayyidina Abu Bakr felt should be done. Right? And that is an invocation of maslaha, that there was benefit for Muslims in it, so therefore he brought Islam, uh, Quran together in the form of a physical book. The same example goes on with the, uh, with the case of Sayyidina Uthman, عنه, that he united all the Muslims on one version of the Quran. The Quran has different recitations. He chose one particular version and he made that the standard version of the Quran, thereby uh, removing uh, any, uh, pos- uh, any possibility of dissent. These are examples of istihsan. It tends to get complicated, as you might have already yeah. <laughs> noticed. But the point here is that Islamic law began with the Prophet ﷺ. During his own life, there were cases when the Prophet himself had to do uh, sort of, he himself had to do ishtihad, and that ishtihad was often uh, approved by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and in some cases challenged. But the key thing with the life of the Prophet is that whatever decision he made, if he had made a mistake, he would not remain on that mistake. So the famous story about the captives of the Battle of Badr, the Prophet made a decision in consultation with the community, and then the Quran was revealed saying that the decision had been wrong. Right? So because of that, Muslims hold this position that the Prophet ﷺ is free of sin. First of all, uh, the, the possibility of mistake is very little, but even if he were to make a mistake, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would not let him stay on that mistake. He would be corrected by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. During the time of the Prophet ﷺ, we also have examples of cases where a single ruling could be interpreted in different ways. So there was a famous hadith about a group of companions of the Prophet. They're sent on a mission, on an expedition, to a neighboring town or a village. And the Prophet tells them, you should pray Asr when you get there. So as the companions are are moving in their journey, they get delayed for, for some reason. And the time for Asr comes, and now it's ending. And now there's a dispute. Should we pray Asr right now, because the time for Asr is ending? Or should we pray Asr when we get there, because that's what the Prophet commanded? So what's happening here is you have the Quranic command and the prophetic example that every prayer has to be prayed within its own time. That's already there. Everybody knows about it. But now you also have a second command right now that you should pray Asr when you get there. In other words, you see, there seems to be a contradiction. Now, one thing we have to keep in mind is with Allah, law is one and there is no contradiction. So whatever contradiction we seem to see is in our understanding. So the companions disagreed. How do we disagree? How do we deal with this? One group said, well, the Prophet said you have to pray Asr when you get there. So they did not pray during the Asr's time and they delayed it until they got to the destination. The other group said, well, we cannot be literalist here. What we have to see is that the Prophet was basically trying to urge us to go faster. We failed in doing that, but that does not change the fact that the time for Asr is right now. So they prayed at that uh, in, the, in the time of Asr. When the companions came back to the Prophet wasallam and told him about this, he approved of both sides. So that is an example of how even during the time of the Prophet there could be a disagreement and the disagreement would be valid because these are different approaches to Islamic law. And this, this is a good example of how Islamic law has developed later on. There is a literalist approach which stays very close to the apparent wording and the meaning of the text. And there is an approach which adopts a more abstract uh, means of understanding Islamic law. So for example, some schools of Islamic law will insist on looking at the strongest hadith on a certain subject. And they will go with that as the main ruling for the, uh, that particular issue. Other schools will say, no, wait a second. We have to bring all of the hadiths, all of the Quranic verses together and see which one of these, either individually or collectively, can give us the general principle. And once they find the general principle, they apply that to further cases. Interestingly, and this is the approach of the Hanafi school. Interestingly, all of the literalist uh, approaches to Islamic law have either died out or have transformed themselves to this abstract approach. And the reason for that is that the literalist approach is an approach which by its very nature is inflexible. And Islamic law, which is a part of Islam, is supposed to be operable until the end of times. And life changes, life gets complicated. A literalist approach cannot take you that far. So an abstract approach is more flexible, is is therefore more adaptable to the uh, circumstances we live in. So in that sense, the abstract approach has, has survived much longer than the literalist approach. So one of the things that uh, came up was the fact that Islamic law is something which is supposed to be operable until the end of times. And so a significant part of Islamic law has to be flexible by its, by its very nature because human condition changes over time considerably, right? 
And this is where uh, the important concept of thawabit and mutaghayyirat comes into play. So thawabit are the constants and mutaghayyirat are the things that vary from time to time. So for example, in the case of Islamic law, what we have is ibadat, the worships, they are constants. No matter where you are, you still have to pray five times a day. Whether it's 8th century Arabia or 21st century America, the number of prayers has not changed. They're still the same. Yeah, if you go to the moon, that'll be a different question, right? Or if you live on the South Pole or the North Pole, then again, we have a different question. But for the bulk of the planet Earth, it's a constant, right? But the question of economic transactions, <clears throat> of social relations, again, there are certain aspects of these things that are constants, but there are many things that are variable. How does the exact ceremony of nikah take place? If you break it down to its very essence, it's a very simple procedure. One side saying, I want to marry you. The other side saying, I agree. Two witnesses are present and the marriage is over. But what is the cultural context in which all of this takes place? That varies from time to time. So there are different aspects of Islamic law that are variable, but there are aspects which are constants. And one of the key things that a jurist uh, must possess is this distinction. What is a constant and what is a variable? And then again, also the question of to what extent uh, should Islamic law be flexible? That is to say, something which is variable, should it always be variable? Or is there a more desirable part of it which should be which should be insisted upon for as long as we can and should be given up only when we must, uh, when there's no other option? So these are some of the things we have to be aware of when we talk of Islamic law. <clears throat> One of the things I forgot to mention earlier, but maybe I can say it now. <clears throat> In terms of the subject matter, Islamic law, perhaps one-fourth of it, deals with worships, ibadat. And that is what sets Islamic law apart from all other legal systems. Most legal systems, when you talk about law, they're dealing with the courts. So law, in the minds of many people, has to do something with uh, the court system, has to do something with the police, and so on and so forth. It is about uh, not the individual, but about the individual's interaction either with other individuals or with the society at large or with the state. Islamic law is beyond that. Islamic law includes all of those things, but also includes other aspects. So worships are a critical part of it. Another part of Islamic law is uh, social relations. Another part is economic relations. Another part is political relations. Excuse me. And of course, criminal law. All of these are parts of Islamic law. Throughout Islamic history, Muslims have tried to uphold all, all of these parts. In the modern period, though, because uh, the Islamic polities crumbled one after another, and most of the nation states that ended up being established in the Muslim world were by and large secular in nature. So what we have today is that in the vast majority of the Muslim world, Islamic law has now been confined to either worships or to family law. So in most cases, criminal law is not in accordance with Islam. In most cases, economic transactions are by and large not governed by Islamic law. They might be Sharia compliant, but they're not necessarily governed by Islamic law. And can you just give the distinction between something being Sharia compliant and not being governed uh, by Islamic law? I'm assuming one thing is that it just... Yeah, so for example, so for example, when you go to uh, the market to buy something today, quite often you will have the option of being able to return the product within a certain time limit, 30 days or 90 days, whatever the case may be. That is Sharia compliant. The Sharia recognizes that. But that rule was not devised by somebody who had the Sharia in mind, right? That rule was devised by somebody who had either the corporate profit in mind or maybe they actually cared about the public, which is hard to believe, but possible. <laughs> Uh, so so the, the, the impetus for that rule came from somewhere else, not because somebody wanted to uphold Islamic law. So that's something to keep in mind. And with economic transactions, quite a few of them actually are like that, that they just incidentally happen to be Sharia compliant, except a few cases. And those few cases would be the cases where riba gets involved, uh, which is usury or interest. Riba is a case which now tends to permeate all economic transactions. So wherever that uh, ends up showing them, then that becomes non-Sharia compliant. Now, since we're talking about Sharia compliant, I think it's also useful to talk about what the word Sharia itself, because we did not discuss that earlier. So the word Sharia has multiple meanings. Literally, Sharia is uh, is a path to a watering hole. In other words, you go there to, to replenish your uh, yourself, to quench your thirst. But as a technical term, Sharia has come to adopt, uh, come to mean at least a couple of things. On the one hand, Sharia is everything that Islam is. So the totality of divine commands pertaining to all kinds of things, whether it's your beliefs or your actions, states of the heart, whatever the case may be, all of that is Sharia. That's one technical meaning. The other technical meaning, which has become more famous, which is more popular and more, more people acknowledge it, 
in that sense sharia is the same as islamic law so all parts of the all uh, all all the divine commands that govern outward actions that is then sharia and then within that those parts of sharia which have to do with courts which can be enforced by the legal system they are sharia law these are different ways uh, these these terms can be can be uh, looked at Law has a narrow meaning, law has a broader meaning. Sharia has a narrow meaning, Sharia has a broader meaning, and so on. I think I'm going to leave it at that because it can get very confusing. So if you have more questions, then we'll, we'll discuss it further. Islamic law has various components to it. Uh, the Quran, the Sunnah, um, and other sources of Islamic law. Now, what, what's the difference between later day scholars who are using these, um, these um, different components uh, to derive law and the companions of the Prophet? Okay, so first, <clears throat> let me correct the terminology. They're not components of Islamic law. They're sources of Islamic law. Sources of Islamic law. So because <clears throat> you have a source from which you derive something, the end product is the Islamic law. Okay, so the Quran is the source. The Sunnah is the source. From these, you derive something, and that becomes Islamic law. Now, in terms of sources, the, the key difference is that during the time of the Prophet wasallam, the source of Islamic law were basically just two, the Quran and the Sunnah. Except in those cases where a companion was not uh, not in geographical proximity to the Prophet. In that case, the Prophet would have to, the, the person in question would have to exert his own opinion. And once they reach a conclusion, if they could, they would go back to the Prophet and verify if I reached the right conclusion or not. But by and large, the main sources of Islamic law were to the Quran and the Sunnah. And even the Quran was being recited to the Muslims by the Prophet. So you could say the main source was the Prophet. So that's during the time of the Prophet. After the Prophet passed away, the companions uh, were left with the Quran in the form of a written text and they had the example of the prophet which they had observed that's why they're called companions because they had kept company with the prophet but beyond that as new issues came up the, the companions would exert their own uh, understanding and they would try to arrive at, an, at a conclusion this is what is called ishtihad that you use your understanding of quran and sunnah to try to answer a question which is not directly addressed in the quran or sunnah this is ishtihad over time what has happened is that this ishtihad became a, a proper discipline in the sense that they became uh, clear-cut modes of reasoning. And so what was just ishtihad in an amorphous sense during the time of the companions, it became codified as qiyas as a particular form of ishtihad, istihsan as a particular form of ishtihad, invocation of maslaha as a particular form of ishtihad, and so on yes. and so forth. So invocation of maslaha is when you think of the larger good. That's, that's one example of it. Uh, Maslaha is often translated as public good. It doesn't have to be public. It could be uh, an individual case as well. Um, so Maslaha is something which is often invoked at the level of, uh, of nations, at the level of political governance. That's where Maslaha is often invoked. So I gave the example earlier of the collection of the Quran. That's at the level of the community, right? It is something which affects all Muslims because the Quran is the source of everything that is Islamic. So maslaha is, is something which is involved in, in those cases. But that's a big, uh, big big, change. The other change that we have in terms of sources of law is the emergence of ijma. Ijma is something that was not there in the time of the Prophet ﷺ. He did not need it. Ijma is something which comes on later, and ijma's role can be very tricky to understand because it depends on a few other things. And now I'm going to get some, somewhat technical. Okay. So think of, this, think of it this way, that there are two kinds of knowledge we have one is definitive knowledge the other is probabilistic knowledge definitive knowledge is that we are sitting today at the university of chicago and it is daytime these two facts we know for sure we have 100 percent certainty this is true but there are certain other facts who our parents are right we don't have definitive knowledge we have close to definitive knowledge right because we have, our parents raised us everybody tells us they're our parents and therefore, we know they are our parents. But we don't have definitive knowledge, like 100% certainty. It is possible, a remote possibility, that someone somewhere comes along and tells us, you know what, you are adopted. Right? So that's a level below definitive. And then there's a whole range of things that goes from definitive, 100% certainty, all the way down to 0% certainty, meaning absence of certainty. So from 99% certainty all the way to zero, that is probabilistic. Right? And within that, what we say is 50% and below is not even probabilistic, that is basically on the side of improbable. So 50% to 99, now that becomes probable. Within this probable, there's high probability and somewhat low probability and so on. This is the general idea. I'm, I'm trying to be as simplistic as I can. The point here is 
the Quran in certain instances is very clear. For example, the Quran says, establish salah, aqim salah. That is very clear. There is no ambiguity. So when we read this verse in the Quran, we know that's what Allah demands of us. But when should we pray? When we look at the Quran, the Quran tells us, well, you pray before the sun rises, you pray at some point in the day, you pray at the end of the day. It also says you should pray before the dawn prayer, what we now call tahajjud. So now there's a confusion. Is tahajjud obligatory or not? Right? Then we have the example of the Prophet ﷺ. The Prophet prayed at certain times. There was a clear time for Fajr, clear time for Zuhr, Asr, Maghrib, and Isha, and so on. But there's some confusion in the reports we have from the Prophet. So the, when does the time of Asr begin? When does the time of Zuhr end? When does the time of Maghrib end? When does the time of Isha begin? There is some confusion there. So when you have this confusion, that means our knowledge of these things is not definitive anymore. We might have 90% certainty, but not 100% certainty. When you have something below than 100% certainty, then that is probabilistic knowledge. And what happens here is <clears throat> that Ijma raises something which was at probabilistic level to the level of definitive knowledge. So for example, all the Muslims agreed, all the Muslims, not just jurists, all the Muslims agreed that five prayers in a day are obligatory. So all Muslims agreed that the Hajjud is not obligatory on the average Muslim. And when you say all Muslim, you mean each Muslim? Every Muslim in the early period, yes. <clears throat> and how was something like that measured? So in the early period, uh, through practice. This is through practice. Through practice, I mean, it's not like they took a vote and everyone said that, you know, no. this is what I yeah, think. yeah. This is, is through practice. Okay. But practice also amongst people who didn't necessarily know anything. <clears throat> they just follow what someone else did. And right. So, so that's where the, the practice of the companions becomes important. <clears throat> and companions being the core group that was around the Prophet it's their practice which then trans is transferred to the rest of the <clears throat> Muslim community <clears throat> another case is the case of <clears throat> excuse me so that's an example I'm sorry that's an example of a complete yeah. uh, ijma, ijma. Among, and that's the earliest that's the early period yeah right? that's a very early period okay. so for example the Hanafis later on will say that Witr is wajib upon Muslims right and so that is the sixth prayer but the other schools disagree and all of the Muslims in the early period, they did not agree on this. So because they did not agree on it, it is not ijma. Right? So Hanafi, because of his particular mode of reasoning, has reached the conclusion that witr is wajib upon him. But because every Muslim does not agree on it, it is not ijma. The ijma is only on the five prayers. Right? Similarly, tahajjud, highly uh, recommended, but still not wajib, still not mandatory. So that's the difference there. Another example is the example of the Quranic verse, which says that, Forbidden for you are your mothers. That is to say, a person cannot marry his mother. The question now is, what about the grandmother? Can you marry your grandmother or not? To us, it seems obvious, right? You cannot get, marry your grandmother. But if you have a legal mind, then you will have to see, well, where is the evidence? So the evidence is not in the Quran. Quran just says, forbidden for you are your mothers. <clears throat> the evidence then is in the form of ijma. Ijma is the consensus of Muslim scholars who said, this verse also includes grandmothers. In other words, the verse is from the Quran, but the meaning of the Qur'an was settled by ijma. And so each individual person who forms that complete uh, ijma, where are they getting their evidence from? If they end up using <clears throat> So they're probably getting their, uh, their understanding from the Qur'an or from the sunnah itself. Whatever the source may be, once they all come together and agree, they have raised their individual understandings, which was probabilistic, to the level of a definitive ruling of Islam. Understood. So basically, yeah. any one thing that could have had multiple interpretations, because it's not mentioned for sure in the source yes if everyone comes together and yes. despite there being multiple possibilities they all agree on one or only that one, is yes. what we would consider yeah. ijma. Okay. that becomes ijma now the question with ijma is <clears throat> for ijma do we need uh, an opinion of all muslims or just muslim scholars so in the early period there was some confusion there but eventually uh, the majority opinion seems to be that it is the jurists whose opinion counts but that is an interesting twist that ijma itself has to do with agreement of everybody but we're not sure agreement of whom, right? So, 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 so there's some twist there. But, but ijma played an important role in the early period. There was an ijma about the Qur'an, that this is what is Qur'an, and that is not Qur'an, right? So there was an ijma as well. Uh, about the basics of Ardeen, uh, about the, like I mean, give the example of the five prayers, there was ijma on that. But as the Muslim community increased in numbers, as it spread geographically, it became difficult for there to be ijma. To the extent that most scholars might not explicitly say it, but at least tacitly admit that ijma is almost impossible today. It is possible, though, later on, that with the, with the improvement of technology, that we could theoretically have the option of ijma. 
if everybody's hooked to technology, everybody there's a sort of a chip embedded in everybody's skin or something, right? If you get to that stage, if like we have proper big brother state, then yes, we could theoretically have an ijma again because every Muslim will be accounted for. So if they all agree on something, or if every Muslim scholar were to agree on something, then we would have ijma. But like I said uh, earlier, the question of ijma, uh, the definition of ijma is disagree disagreed upon. Uh, scholars disagree whether it's the ijma of all Muslims or only of jurists. There's also disagreement on the question of whether the ijma of one generation is binding upon the ijma of the next generation. So all of these disagreements persist. In that sense, today for us, ijma is more of a theoretical nature. It's not that important in practice, but it is important in terms of transmission of Islam in the early period. So that, when yeah. you say early, I mean, at what point did ijma become difficult? Because, I mean, Muslims obviously went uh, very far apart from each other. Well, I would say from the... Even during the time of Sayyidina Uthman, it became difficult. Okay, so because even, yes, because right. even in the time of Sayyidina Uthman, the the Muslim state had expanded all the way from Arabia into Central Asia. They were reaching Central Asia, and in the West they were reaching Africa. Uh, they were going past Egypt, and by the time you uh, come to the period of the Umayyads, the Islamic Empire extended from Spain in the West to Central Asia in the East. That's a huge expanse, and even though Hajj was a was an opportunity for Muslims to come together, still. All Muslim scholars could not be brought together. So the possibility of Ijma went down considerably. So really, in terms of Ijma, how many things are there that are unanimously agreed upon? I mean, it's so just a handful of things then. It is a handful of things, but there's a smart way of looking at it as well. So Ibn Hazm, a famous Andalusi scholar, he has a book called Muratib al-Ijma. And what he does is basically, he basically goes through all of the books of Islamic law and tries the things that Muslims agree on. And so he ends up with it with a ton of things that Muslims agree on. But this is a different way of looking at it. One way of looking at ijma is that Muslims explicitly say we agree on this thing. Another is because Muslims do not happen to disagree on something, so therefore there's an there's an de facto ijma. So in that sense, you can have a huge range of ijma. Like I said in, in that book, Maratib al-Ijma of, of Ibn Hazm, he has a whole list of things. But in terms of explicit statement of ijma, those are going to be very few things. Okay. And ijma itself is that is that a um, is that something necessary? Uh, well, in the early period, it became necessary. In the yes. early period, yeah, but uh, afterwards, because I mean, different people in their own different geographical whatever. Well, so so in the later period, ijma becomes a tool of disciplining, in that when there is ijma, you're not supposed to contradict it. Okay. So every jurist, one of the the one of the conditions to be a, a mujtahid is that you should know the what what has been agreed upon. In the, in, in the sense that now you will not oppose it. Whatever you come to, whatever conclusion you come to should not be in opposition to that ijma. So in that sense, knowing ijma is important uh, even for today's jurist. But in terms of actually uh, enacting an ijma, like I said, that's that's a very remote possibility. Most likely it's not going to happen. Okay. And you know, I, 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 there's so many questions and so many topics mm -hmm. and I don't want to dwell too much on this one. Okay. But I just want to go back to one thing that you had mentioned. Mm -hmm. And that was about <clears throat> ijma being difficult after the time of Uthman. I mean, do you find? Um, I mean, do you find other individuals who might disagree with that notion? Um, well, it's all possible. Yeah. <laughs> it's all possible, but I think most of the differences of opinion that we have today, especially in contemporary Islamic thought, they have to do with the question of whether ijma is binding on later generations or not. That's where there's a lot of disagreement and a lot of passionate uh, back and forth. Uh, I think both sides have their arguments. Uh, there is a question that if, if the ground realities have changed considerably, like with modernity, uh, the way we, we do things, the way uh, we live our lives has changed so much that it kind of makes sense for there to be the possibility of opposing ijma in today's world. But at the same time, uh, opening this door of opposing ijma seems extremely risky and dangerous. So there's a vibrant debate on this question. Is this possible for ijma to be violated by, let's say, today's generation? There's a vibrant debate there. But the actual, but the, the, to go back to your question of when did Ijma become impossible, again, that's an approximate dating, right? So based upon my knowledge of history, I think uh, during the time of Sayyidina Uthman, it became difficult. Somebody else might come along and say, you know what, I've spent more time doing research on it, and my conclusion is it was actually during Sayyidina Ali's time. Okay, fine, not a problem, not, not worth fighting. <laughs> and I mean, again, yeah. going back to your thing about, you know, chips inserted in our bodies. Right. I mean, social media, do you think that might affect, I mean, the likelihood of us, um, you know, agreeing upon things more than people after the time of Rafa, because obviously... No, no, so, so there are two things. One is, is ijma theoretically possible? That is dependent on whether you have access to every Muslim or 
every Muslim scholar, depending on what your definition of ijma is. That's one thing. So like I said, in the time of Sayyidina Uthman, Muslims had spread so much that there was this logistical problem. Yeah. Like, do we have access to all Muslims in a reasonable amount of time to be able to arrive at ijma? That's one thing. The other is, will Muslims agree on anything or not, whether they are 10 or 10 million? That's a different issue altogether. On that front, it is possible that social media sways people in a certain way and they agree on one thing. But that's where we have to keep in mind the reason why ijma was, was sanctioned to begin with. The, the evidence for ijma is the hadith of the Prophet wasallam uh, to the effect that my ummah will not agree on misguidance. So if the ummah will not agree on misguidance, I'm not sure social media will be the, the engine for an agreement, right? Because as we have seen, social media quite often leads to, to erroneous conclusions, erroneous agreements. So I wouldn't count on social media as the means for, for ijma. My point when I said earlier about ijma being possible with increasing technology is in logistical sense. That because you have access to every Muslim on the face of earth, then it is possible that if they agree on something, you would have that record. Yeah. I mean, when I asked, I meant more like the fact that there's a lot of people on social media. Maybe, I know obviously I don't have an approximate amount, but let's say, I don't know, 60% of the Muslim world is on social media. And maybe you can send out a poll to agree right. on something. Right. Um, something like that is a bit more concrete than back in the day. When right, right. It's right. That'd be very difficult, right, like right. you said. So then again, that is a question of logistics. Yeah. So logistically, yes, ijma is, is increasingly becoming possible, logistically. Yeah. But will Muslims agree on something? That is a different question altogether. Okay. okay. Um, and just in terms of uh, some terminology, mm-hmm. uh, you had mentioned the word wajib earlier. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I'm assuming that is a term that is based upon some type of framework. Right, how you right, determine something. Right. I mean, wajib. I mean, people try to right. say wajib. So, so wajib can be used in two different ways. There's the general usage of wajib, in which case wajib is the same as farud, which means something which is obligatory, right? But wajib also. Uh, is there a hesitation to use the word farud in that case? Yeah. So, so like I said, in, in general, Muslim scholars, uh, scholars of Islamic law, use the word wajib and farud interchangeably, but the Hanafis have a distinct methodology, and the Hanafis they differentiate between farud and wajib. And they do it on the basis of the strength of the evidence. If the evidence is definitive, they consider it to be fard. If the evidence is not definitive, probabilistic, they consider it wajib. So therefore, they do not consider wither prayer to be fard. They call it wajib. So the choice of that term is important in the case of the Hanafis. But the non-Hanafis, they don't uh, differentiate between the two. They use wajib and fard uh, interchangeably. And what are the practical uh, implications of something like this? Because the way I understand it is that every single scholar every single group of scholars and every single school had its own methodology right right, right and according to your methodology mm-hmm. something can be x or you know wajib or far right, right. and according to somebody else's it isn't right and of course there's some might say that there's no such thing as multiple truths to god right right so someone there is incorrect right right and so um um, I mean, how, how do you go about something like that? Well, so, so basically when it comes to these issues where there is no clear guidance from the Quran or Sunnah or where there seems to be an apparent contradiction and we have to resolve it, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not burden us uh, with more than what we can handle. So we, we are answerable to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for what we have been given. And so in, in that case, if you exert your sincere effort and you arrive at a conclusion, even if you are wrong, you get a reward. Uh, so there's a famous hadith of the Prophet ﷺ that for every mushtad there are two, uh, for every mushtad there is a reward. And if there is, if he's right, he gets two rewards. If he's wrong, he gets one reward. So the one reward is for making that effort. Now with respect to the case of, uh, what, what else did you ask about? Uh, in terms of different methodologies coming to conclusions about different, <coughs> about the rank of different um, acts of worship. And right. what are the, I guess, repercussions? Yeah, like I said, so, so in the case of ishtihad, if, if the, the person is qualified to engage in ishtihad, if the person exerts their effort with sincerity, then there's an ajr for them, there's a reward for them, <clears throat> even if they be wrong. If they're right, they get two rewards. And, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has not burdened us with, uh, with finding the truth beyond what is humanly possible. And in, in that sense, there's also some mercy in there because what it does is it uh, opens up the space for Muslims to pick and choose if need be. If need be. Um, so going back to different schools, I mean, schools are just <clears throat> different methodologies in right. accessing uh, scripture and accessing whatever body of evidence that we might have mm-hmm. and coming to different conclusions about that. Right. Now, um, what? how many schools are there in Islam? How many were there historically and how many are there now? Right. 
So in the early period, we had a lot of schools. <clears throat> Every prominent scholar had his own way of approaching the Quran and Sunnah. And uh, they weren't always diametrically opposed, but slight variations. And because of that, there were a number of different schools. But over time, the school's uh, number decreased, mainly because of, a, uh, of the number of students a teacher had, number of texts that were authored, and number of, uh, of, uh, of uh, scholars that kept emerging in every generation. So now what we have come down to is four Sunni schools that are extant today, the Hanafis, the Malikis, the Shafis, and the Hanbalis. Among the Shi'is, there are at least two schools, Ithna Ashari and the Ismailis. And then there's the, uh, the Zaydis. And then we also have, in the case of the, the Kharijis, the Ibad. These are all different schools of Islamic law. And depending on who, which scholar you ask, uh, each, each school is considered either uh, within the fold of Islamic law or within the fold of Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah or outside the fold of it. And the ones outside the fold of Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah, are they even Muslim or not? Uh, are they to be taken as a valid source of law? There's a disagreement on that. Among the Sunnis, <clears throat> the four schools are Hanafi, Maliki, Shafi, and Hanbali. The Shi'is, there's a strong difference of opinion on the subject. Are the Shi'is to be considered as a valid uh, school of law or not? About the Ibadis, uh, there's not much knowledge. So, so these are the schools that we have today. And, and, and these names, where do they come from? <clears throat> so the names are primarily derived from the, the eponymous founders of the schools. I say eponymous because uh, when, a, when a scholar was active, it is quite possible that he was not in his own mind putting together a school. He was just trying to make sense of, uh, of Islamic law and deriving rulings. It's his, his students who basically ended up calling it a school because they all agreed on the methodology of the teacher. <clears throat> so in that sense, in the founder of the Hanafi school is Abu Hanifa, ta'ala. the founder of the Maliki school is Malik bin Anas, the founder of the Shafi school is Imam Shafi, the founder of the Hanbali school is Imam Ahmed al-Hanbal, <clears throat> and so on. And in terms of location and time? <clears throat> so Abu Hanifa was based in Kufa, in Iraq, uh, and later on also in Baghdad. Imam Malik was based in Medina. Imam Shafi was based first in the Hijaz, then in Iraq, and finally in Egypt. And Imam Ahmed bin Hanbal, he was based in, in uh, Iraq, in Baghdad. And in terms of their time period, Imam uh, Abu Hanifa is the senior most. He came first. Uh, Imam uh, Malik was his junior contemporary. And Imam Shafi came when uh, was born on, in the year that Imam Abu Hanifa passed away. And Imam Shafi and Imam uh, Ahmed bin Hanbal, they are contemporaries. Imam Ahmed bin Hanbal is a bit younger than Imam Shafi. So this is how these people are. And this is uh, the second century of Islam and in, goes into the third century of Islam as well. In the case of the Shi'i schools, <coughs> the Isna'ashri school, <coughs> excuse me, they trace themselves to Imam Jafar al-Sadiq, one of the Imams of Ahlul Bayt. Uh, many Sunnis doubt that, but uh, nevertheless, that is the, the Isna'ashri claim. As far as the Ismailis are concerned, I'm not sure if the Ismaili fiqh is even alive today or not. Uh, there's a very small community of practicing Ismailis among the Dawoodi Bohras of India. Uh, the Awakhanis, I'm not sure if they are even practicing as uh, as Ismailis. But the Dawoodi Bohras have some fiqh with them. <clears throat> so I'm sure there's still Ismaili fiqh is alive among them. The Zaydis are a strong and vibrant community in, in northern Yemen. They associate uh, their fiqh to Zaid bin Ali, who's one of the earlier Imams of, uh, of uh, Ahlul Bayt. And he was a contemporary of Imam Abu Hanifa. And as far as the Ibadis are concerned, I'm not, uh, I'm not sure who they're named after. <clears throat> within, within, within these schools, um, how well have the methodologies of the founders of the earlier people of these schools been maintained? Or is it, I mean, is it, has it been maintained all the way down? Has it been within the school itself any differences? So, so within the four Sunni schools, Hanafi, Maliki, Shafi, and Hanbali, the methodologies are very well preserved. There's a very clear chain of uh, transmission of texts transmission of ideas, and anybody who wants to go back and trace those ideas, it's, it's very straightforward. Now, of course, the transmission of these ideas and texts are not, not as ironclad as the Qur'an, but they come very close to it. There's a famous saying by a 19th century scholar in India who said, Al-Mutun Kal-Mutawatir. What he meant by that was that um, the fiqhi texts, as they emerged, their transmission from their authors to us, is as mass transmitted, is as definitive, like the Qur'an was transmitted from the earlier generation to us. Uh, in terms of uh, the earlier histories of each one of these schools, modern scholars in the West have tried to raise a lot of doubts about them. But as, as research progresses, what we're seeing increasingly is that uh, the Muslim claim, claim has been right all along, that these texts are uh, 
have been transmitted from the earlier generations to the later generations uh, with, with very good levels of confidence, very good levels of confidence. And did students in any any given um, school disagree with their teachers in terms of their methodology of course. necessarily creating their own school? Of course, it happens all the time. Uh, if anything, uh, you have the example of Imam Shafi. He was a student of Imam Malik, uh, and then he also studied with Imam Muhammad, a student of Imam Abu Hanifa. And eventually Imam Shafi establishes his own school, right? That is an example of somebody who establishes his own school. But in the case of the Hanafis, <clears throat> you have Abu Hanifa's two students, Imam Abu Yusuf and Imam Muhammad. These two did not create their own school. In fact, Imam Muhammad, when he was codifying the Hanafi school, he would always uh, put Imam Hanifa's opinion, Imam Abu Yusuf's opinion, and then his own opinion. So because of the way he codified the school, the way codification in this case means writing down the opinions. The way he wrote down the opinions, he put all these three together, so therefore these three together are now the Hanafi school, even though Imam Abu Hanifa and his two students disagree on a lot of things. To give you an example, when it comes to the time for Asr prayer, people will often say there's a Shafi time and there's a Hanafi time. What they forget is even within the Hanafi school, the Hanafi, the so-called Hanafi time is only Imam Abu Hanifa's time. The timing of Imam Abu Yusuf and Imam Muhammad is the same as the Shafi's time. And because Imam Shafi was junior to them, a better way of saying would be that uh, the so-called Shafi time is actually Imam Muhammad and Imam Abu Yusuf's time, right? So, so in that sense, Hanafi school especially is very diverse. Uh, from the very beginning, we have these three different uh, scholars, three giants in their own in, in their own uh, in their own way, and they have different opinions. But yet, they work together, and the school is codified together. The school is uh, transmitted together, and therefore, the Hanafi school then emerges as this conglomeration of these three uh, sets of opinions. And how critical was how critical were people from one school of thought um, uh, in regards to uh, other schools of thought? And um, well, how did they um, manifest oh, yes. their criticism? Right, right. So in terms of criticism of other schools, it could get very passionate in the early period especially, and even in, in later times. And there were also those who were very calm and, uh, and relaxed about it. So in the early period, what we find is Imam Abu Hanifa was often the target of, uh, of his opponents who felt that he was insincere that he was willfully compromising Islamic law. Imam Hanifa received a very bad reputation in the early period. Nevertheless, all those who engaged with him, they came to recognize that he is not insincere. If anything, he has a deeper understanding of Islamic law than many of his contemporaries. So over time, what happened was <clears throat> that Muslim scholars, especially the Sunnis, they learned to coexist with one another. And then you have a number of non-Hanafi scholars penning biographies of Abu Hanifa trying to uh, show to everyone that Imam Hanifa was a pious person, that he was solid in his command of Islamic sources, and therefore, even when we disagree with him, does not mean that he is insincere. So in the early period, you, uh, you have those strong uh, oppositions, but you also have moments of reconciliation, moments of understanding, and then eventually there emerges what you can easily call the Sunni consensus. And I'm using consensus in a, in a general sense, not in the technical sense in that the majority of Sunni scholars come together and say, you know what, these four schools are all valid in their own ways. Uh, the actual truth is with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, but as far as we humans are concerned, all four of these schools are valid. In the later period, what we see is with the rise of certain movements uh, in, in some parts of the Muslim world, there's a re-emergence of this early antagonism towards uh, the Hanafis especially. Uh, and that was, it, it became quite ugly in the 90s. But since the events of 9-11, that has kind of died down. <clears throat> but so, to answer your question in, in brief, there have been both kinds of, of cases. There have been uh, passionate criticisms, sometimes leading to violence, not always, but sometimes. Uh, but there has also been a long history of coexistence, of recognizing that each one of these four schools uh, is valid. And in terms of methodo methodological <coughs> differences between these two schools, these four schools rather, I'm sorry, mm -hmm. They um, because they emerge at different time periods, right? Um, and other sciences upon which they might have depended were codified, uh, you know, at different time periods, right? right. Um, how do these methodologies differ from one another? So, the first two schools, the Hanafis and the and the Malikis, were basically grounded in their particular cities. So, with Imam Malik, he had a very clear uh, principle called Amal Ahl Madina. That one of the sources of law for him was the practice of the people of Medina. In the case of Imam Abu Hanifa, he doesn't <coughs> use the term practice of the people of Kufa. But what we find is that 
quite often what he is arguing is the position of the scholars of Kufa. So you have this sort of regional flavor to things that uh, both Imam Malik and Imam Hanifa have a very strong affinity for the positions that have been reached by the scholars of their native cities. And those positions were reached based on certain methodologies as well. So the, the people of Medina, the, the jurists of Medina had a certain approach, the jurists of Kufa had a certain approach. And the jurists of Kufa, their approach was quite often more abstract than the jurists of uh, Medina. Imam Shafi is the one who comes along and who basically uh, learns from both sides. He learns in Medina, he also learns in Baghdad with the student of Imam Abu Hanifa. And eventually he says, well, this regional approach is somewhat problematic because the regional approach cannot easily be codified. All that we have is that the people of Medina said this or the people of Kufa said this, and it's not uh, as airtight as I would like it to be. So he says the best approach then is that we go with the hadiths of the Prophet Now remember, the hadith is a, a recording of the sunnah of the Prophet So hadith is a, is a historical record of the sunnah. Hadith by itself does not become an evidence. And by sunnah, I'm sorry, can you define sunnah? Sunnah is the example of the Prophet In the case of Hanafi, is the example of the Prophet and the example of the companions. Now the hadith is the record of that sunnah. But for the Malikis and the Hanafis, the practice of their respective cities are also a record of the Sunnah. Imam Shafi says that this local practice, which you consider to be a record of the Sunnah, is not reliable enough. He says the, the best means of knowing the Sunnah is the Hadith, the written record. So he causes a shift in Islamic thinking from this local practice as the record of the Sunnah to the Hadith as the primary record of the Sunnah. And that ends up affecting all of Islamic thought. So then what you find on later on is that both the Malikis and the Hanafis are finding themselves compelled to find hadiths which support their position. So that's, that's where there's a twist and that's where the modern Western scholars find reasons uh, to basically concoct their conspiracy theories. That maybe there was some, some kind of conspiracy going on. It's not a conspiracy. What is happening is that both Malikis and Hanafis have their Islamic law, which they learned from their teachers in their respective cities. And those teachers were grounded in the Sunnah of the Prophet So they are authentic, they have proper sources. It's just how do you validate that Islamic law to the outsider? That was the question. And in that sense, the approach that Imam Shafi brought with him was more robust, was an approach <clears throat> that was easily verifiable. And so Imam Shafi was able to successfully make a claim that the best way for us to know what is right and what is wrong is through the Hadith. And that then impacted everybody so much that they said, okay, you know what, we already have the ruling, we're not from our local tradition, but to satisfy the pressure or to sort of like, uh, yeah, to, to deal with the pressure that the Shafis are putting on us, we also have to find a hadith now. So therefore you find Hanafis at times <clears throat> resorting to, to to collection of all kinds of hadiths to justify the, the position that they already hold. But, but if you ask a Hanafi scholar and you sit down with him and you have a discussion with him, eventually they will say, no, these hadiths are not the reason why we're doing what we're doing. The reasoning is coming from the earlier scholars of Kufa and their knowledge of the practice of the Prophet So, for example, I'm sorry I'm dwelling on this a bit more, but then it's, it's something that is important. <clears throat> Hanafis will also at times cite a hadith which is not strong enough, right? <clears throat> and the Shafis are citing a hadith which is the strongest on the subject. <clears throat> but for the Hanafis, the hadith works fine. Because the hadith in this question, in this case, will be illustrating an issue that uh, will be illustrating a general principle that Imam Hanifa relied upon. So, for example, <clears throat> the question of raising hands in salah. The very clear hadiths that the Prophet ﷺ raised his hands not only at the beginning of salah, but also when going into ruku, coming up from ruku, when going into sajda, and so on. And those hadiths are the evidence for the Shafi'is. But for the Hanafis, <clears throat> Imam Abu Hanifa, when he looked at all of the evidences, what he said was, there is a history to Islamic, uh, to the to the Salah. He says, in the early uh, period of the Prophet's prophethood, there was more concessions given to people in terms of their movements. As we move towards the end of the Prophet's life, the concessions are removed. What that tells us, that excessive movement in Salah is disliked. So Imam Hanifa's conclusion, after looking at all of the hadiths, including the ones in which the Prophet is shown to be uh, raising his hands while going into ruku and getting up, he, including all of that, after looking at all of that, he's saying, well, the conclusion that I have reached is 
that the last practice of the Prophet was that there should be minimal movement in Salah. So he reaches the conclusion that you should raise your hands only at the beginning of Salah. Right? So this is an example of the of Imam Abu Hanifa coming to a conclusion after examining all of the evidences available to him. And this is the approach that he learned from his teachers. So now when a Shafi puts a pressure on the Hanafi, the Hanafi comes back with this with some hadith which shows that the Prophet did not raise his hands or something of the sort, right? And the hadith might be weak. And the hadith scholar will say, wait a second, you're citing a very weak hadith. But the Hanafi is not bothered by it because that weak hadith is giving him the general principle. So this is just one illustration of, of these cases. But like I said earlier, for the Hanafis and Malikis, the Islamic law was codified early on. And so they already had Islamic law based on the Sunnah of the Prophet as they had learned from their teachers. So um, basically the, 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 the school in Medina and the school in Kufa, mm -hmm. they both first had their, I guess, way of life that they, that they observed in their right. community. Right. And then they supported that way of life through later developments of in hadith right. if, if if needed be if, if needed, needed be uh, whereas the Shafis they did they have also I mean you mentioned that they didn't necessarily have something like that but they're just using pretty much they're just using hadith as just data right so Imam so Imam Shafi started with Imam Malik right so he was a, you could say he was a Maliki in the beginning yeah. right. <laughs> And then he studied with, with Imam Muhammad, the student of Imam Abu Hanifa. So he was exposed to Hanafism, even though he didn't become Hanafi, but he was exposed to it. And this is the tricky part about the development of Islamic law. It's not like you have a, a proper start date and an end date of a madhab, right? Imam Shafi himself is a complex being. He had learned to pray in Mecca even before he went to Imam Malik, right? How did he learn how to pray? So he learned from the people of Mecca, right? So in other words, there was the, the idea of community practice impacts everybody including Imam Shafi himself. He learns to pray a certain way. He learns to fast a certain way in Mecca even before he goes to Imam Malik in Medina. Then he goes to Imam Malik and then he learns the evidences for all of these things. And then he goes to uh, Imam Muhammad in Baghdad and he is sort of like, has sort of a culture shock, different way of doing things. And then he says, wait a second, all of this confusion that is emerging, let me resolve this by resorting to Hadith. So with Imam Shafi, we have this sort of uh, systematic way of doing things, something which is verifiable, because with Imam Hanifa, what are the evidences? You don't always find them in, in those early books. So that's that's where the Imam Shafi has an edge. Okay. And, and, and that's where some scholars have even gone on to say that uh, since Imam Shafi, the whole Muslim, the whole Sunni world has been Shafiized. <laughs> <laughs> because he came up with a methodology that was verifiable. Right? With the, the Kufan methodology or the Medina methodology, that's not verifiable. Because that is personal knowledge, anecdotal knowledge of these individual scholars. Right, which gets codified in the form of Islamic law. But what is the basis for that? They're not always telling you that. With Imam Shafi, you get the basis also codified along with the ruling. So that's the big difference there. Okay. And in terms of disagreements within uh, between these different schools, I mean, how how much do they disagree with each other? I mean, obviously we're talking about the, um, there's some minor disagreements, I suppose. Um, well, so so majority of things they agree, uh, and most of the differences have to be about minor things. Like even in the case of Raf al-Yadain raising hands in Salah, that is a case where uh, the disagreement is not that it is wajib, it's just that it is sunnah or not. In other words, whether you do it or not, your Salah is still valid. The question is, was your Salah perfect or not? Right? So that is the disagreement. Some cases though <clears throat> become critical, like the question of reciting al-Fatiha behind the Imam. That becomes extremely critical. So according to uh, Imam al-Shafi'i, if you do not recite Fatiha behind the Imam, your Salah is not valid. You're going to Hanafi, you're not supposed to recite Fatiha behind the Salah. So this is a case where there's an either-or disagreement. It's You cannot have both, right? But though these cases are very few. By and large, most cases have to do with cases that are minor issues, and most things are agreed upon. Okay. And, you know, this is going to be a, a bit of a tricky mm -hmm. question, only because uh, in asking it, I don't want to conflate anything. But there's what the Prophet did and what the Sahaba did. Right. And then there's the data that surrounds that in terms of you know the quran in terms of the, the hadith you know what was permitted the hadith even according to the, you know the hanafis like what the, what the sahaba did what they agreed upon what they didn't agree upon and then you have the later day scholars who are actually developing and codifying uh this these these rules and these laws mm. um i mean these are two different things in a sense because for example if uh 
everyone at the time of the Prophet, they're either folding their hands or not folding their hands. Uh, or someone else maybe at some point came, I mean, I don't know what the, what, the, what, the, what the reason is, but maybe someone put their hand down and for like a moment in time, and then one person saw that, and he ended up narrating right. it. Which is also kind of difficult to understand because, I mean, these people are living with each other. They're talking to each other, and whatever mistakes they had, they you know corrected it, or maybe they didn't transmit uh, information that was later on corrected. Right. So I mean, in terms of why well, we could just take that for an example, why is it that certain people they fold their hands and certain people don't fold their hands uh, right. during prayer? Something yeah. as common as prayer. That means people right. do. Right. Everyone agrees upon that. Right. Why is such a big difference there? Well, so. I think the big difference comes from the fact that when the Sahaba moved to different cities, uh, the Sahaba took their practice with them. I have to keep in mind, we're looking at these primitive cultures. It's not like a proper class was going on, right? They were living with the Prophet ﷺ and they're observing in their own ways. This is a case of, of transmission of, of, of information across uh, through human practice and across generations. So in the case, it's, it's entirely possible that the Prophet ﷺ during his own life prayed in all, all of these different stances. That he sometimes had his hands on the side, sometimes he had his hands folded, above the navel, below the navel, and so on. It's entirely possible all of these things happened. But when the Sahaba moved to different cities, they probably had a preferred practice. And that preferred practice became sort of codified in the practice of that city. Okay. So, 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 so that, that's how I see it. And this is exactly why the, uh, the Muslim society early on developed this idea that if it is not definitive, then it is a valid disagreement. Okay. Which means that you do not declare that person to be an unbeliever. Right? Um, and in terms of, I mean, right now, uh, the geographic distribution between these various schools, um, I mean, how would, you, how would you describe it? I mean, between the Hanafi and Shafi. So, if you start from the east, <coughs> Southeast Asia, which is Malaysia, Singapore, uh, Brunei, and Indonesia, that is solidly Shafi'i. Uh, and as you move west, you find Bangladesh, that is Hanafi, India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Central Asia, Muslims in China, these are all Hanafis. Then you, as you move further west, portions of Iran are also Hanafi. Uh, the rest of Iran is by and large Ithna Ashari. <clears throat> if you go come south towards uh, the Arabian Peninsula, it is a mix. In the Yemen, you have Shafis and Zaydis. In Oman, you have Ibadis. In UAE, there are Ibadis. And the Kharijis. Uh, non-violent Kharijis and the UAE is Maliki and then you uh, go further up in the peninsula the uh, in the Najd you have uh, Hanbalis uh, Saudi Arabia is a mix there are Hanbalis there are Shafis and Maliki because of Hijaz all scholars of all schools are present there but the Hanbali schools uh, tends to dominate in, in Saudi Arabia <clears throat> then as you move further west you have Iraq and Syria you have Hanafis and Isna Asharis and Shafi'is Turkey is primarily Hanafi <clears throat> with some Shafi'is then when you go to Egypt, you find Shafis and Malikis with some Hanafis. As you move further into Africa, North Africa and West Africa are primarily Malikis with very small pockets of, of Hanafis. As you come down uh, east towards uh, East Africa, that is primarily Shafi'i. And interestingly, uh, the Shafi school spread from Hadramaut in southern Yemen. It spread from there to Southeast Asia and from there to East Africa and also to southern India. As you go into Europe, uh, the southeastern Europe that was conquered by the Ottomans, that is Hanafi. The Muslims there are Hanafis. Uh, then portions of Russia uh, are also primarily Hanafi, with some Shafis as well. <clears throat> but this was the historical distribution of, Islam, of, of these different schools. What we have in the modern period is, number one, the rise of the Salafi movement. And as a result of the, of the rise of the Salafi movement, in significant parts of the Muslim world, including all of the regions I've said, there's a strong presence of Salafis in all of these places. You have Salafis in Egypt, Salafis, in, of course, in Saudi Arabia and the Arabian Peninsula, Salafis in Southeast Asia, in South Asia, Central Asia. Everywhere you will find Salafis <clears throat> to the extent. And Salafis, again, have had a strong impact on, on Muslim communities in all of these countries. Like the Shafis, like I said earlier that about, about Imam Shafi, people say that ever since he came around, there was a Shafiization of Islamic thought across the board. I would say ever since the Salafis came on the scene in the modern period, <clears throat> there was some degree of Salafiization all across the Muslim world. Even amongst the staunchest of Hanafis, you will find Salafi approaches playing a role. So for example, even in madrasas, when they're studying Hadith, you will find Hanafi scholars, Hanafi students and scholars, staunch Hanafis, resorting directly to, uh, to provide evidences from the Quran and Sunnah, which is a very Salafi approach, right? If you're Hanafi, for your first 
stop is what the, the Hanafi school says, not what the Quran and Sunnah says, because the whole idea of following a school is, <clears throat> and I will move into a different discussion, but the whole idea of following a school is that you're saying my understanding of Quran and Sunnah is not as reliable as the understanding of the scholars of the school. But with the rise of the Salafi movement, what we're seeing is <clears throat> that even among staunchest of Hanafis or staunchest of Malikis, they will say, wait a second, let me give you the Quran and Sunnah first, and then we'll talk about the Imams are saying. So you, you find that effect across the board. <clears throat> And when it comes to the diaspora, which is to say Muslims in the in the West, most of them are diaspora. There are very few indigenous Muslims who are converts. Most come either from the Arab world or from the South Asia. <clears throat> so in the diaspora, in, in the Western countries, we have a mix. Wherever the, the South Asians dominate, you will find the Hanafi Mazhab having a strong presence. Wherever the Arabs are dominant, you will find all schools are prevalent. African Americans will often uh, <clears throat> gravitate towards either Malikis or Shafi'is. So West is, is much more mixed. In some ways, you could say the West is sort of a reflection of the of the Hijaz. Just like the Hijaz, where all schools are dominant, the West also has all schools present. And <coughs> historically, uh, the, the Hanafi school was uh, pretty popular. Is there any reason, is, there any, is it due to something specific in this so, methodology, or is it right. just happened to be? The question of popular is, I wouldn't use the term popular. I think what you're trying to say is the number of followers. Yeah. was the largest um, I'm not sure that if that was actually true we find the largest concentration of Hanafis is in South Asia and South Asians are just too numerous <laughs> and South Asia became Muslim starting in the 13th century so before the 13th century CE uh, there were no South Asian Muslims right so th at that time the Hanafis were competing with the Shafis and Malikis and Hanbalis in the central Muslim lands so I wouldn't say Hanafis were the most popular at that time in fact, if you look closely at the, the history of Islamic law in the early period, what you find is that the non-Hanafis tended to be the dominant group. Excuse me. There, there was one uh, moment in Islamic history, especially during the Abbasid Empire, when the student Imam Abu Hanifa, Imam Abu Yusuf, became the chief judge, and he was able to appoint some of his students to, to, uh, to positions of, as judges in different parts of the, the Abbasid Empire. But that did not necessarily mean that the, the masses also became Hanafis. In fact, very soon after that, you have the rise of Imam Ahmad bin Hanbal, and he becomes the leader, uh, becomes the leader of all Sunnis vis-à-vis -vis the Mu'tazilis, and so you find Baghdad dominated by Hanbalis. So, in that sense, uh, I wouldn't say the Hanafis were the largest group in the early period. That uh, that has to be attributed to the fact that South Asians became uh, Muslims in such large numbers that just by virtue of numbers, they're the largest group. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, it's, it's I, I would say it's an accident in that okay. sense. Yeah. All right. Um, and when did distinct methodological innovations uh, stop happening? I mean, uh, at what point did people stop? Actually, them? they haven't stopped happening. It's a question of acceptance. So uh, methodological innovations have been going on consistently. Uh, I spoke earlier about the Hanafi approach of uh, looking for general principles, right? But these general principles were never codified. Mm -hmm. How do you arrive at these general principles? Uh, what you are eventually ended up relying on is the understanding of Imam Abu Hanifa, right? Whatever he felt was the general principle became the general principle. And this was one of the reasons why the non-Hanafis were not comfortable with the Hanafi methodology. But then you have Imam Ghazali appearing on the scene. And after Imam Ghazali, a whole series of scholars like Fakhruddin Ar-Razi and Ibn Taymiyyah and Abu Isaq al-Shatabi. And with them, you have the emergence of this discourse of Maqasid al-Sharia. And my, my take on this is that Maqasid al-Sharia is an attempt by non-Hanafis to make sense of the Hanafi method. <laughs> right? I haven't found that many people agreeing with it. Although one person that I came across, Imran Ahsan Niazi, a prominent Pakistani scholar, he agrees with it. He says the same thing. That the Maqasid al-Sharia discourse was an attempt by non-Hanafis to make sense of the Hanafi approach. Because Maqasid al-Sharia discourse, what it, what it does is, it makes Islamic law extremely flexible. You go back to the purposes of the law. And based upon the purposes of the law, you can enact new rulings. And so Imam Abu Hanifa, with him, for, so for example, uh, we go to the question of zakat. The verse in the Quran which talks about uh, the people who are to be the recipients of zakat, it mentions eight different categories. And the wording used is plural. Now plural in Arabic means at least three. So according to one report, Imam Shafi, he says you have to find 24 recipients of zakat. Right, or in the case of zakat al-fitr, there's a question of zakat al-fitr being given in the form of kind, not in cash. Right, with the Hanafis, 
straightforward. Find any one person of those eight categories and Jizakat is taken care of. With Zakat al-Fitr, you don't have to give in kind. It can also be in cash. Meaning, if, for example, if you have 40 goats, right? If you own 40 goats, you have to give one goat in Zakat. For Hanafis, it doesn't have to be one goat. It could be the value of one goat, right? So in that sense, Imam Abu Hanifa's fiqh was very flexible. And that was based upon certain general principles that the purpose is to feed the poor, not the formula of giving one goat in zakat, right? So this idea of focusing on the purpose of the law as opposed to the letter of the law, that is characteristic of Imam Abu Hanifa's fiqh. But these purposes were not always codified in Hanafi law. And so the Maqasid al-Shariya discourse emerges in, among non-Hanafis to make sense of these things. If you notice, in the case of Maqasid al-Shariya, there's not a single prominent Hanafi. Why? Because the Hanafis didn't need it. <laughs> they already had Hanafi fiqh. Non-Hanafis are the ones who wanted to make sense of it. So Imam Ghazali, he's a Shafi'i. Izzuddin ibn Abdul Salam, he's a Shafi'i. Al-Qarafi, he's a Maliki. Ibn Taymiyyah comes from the Hamri uh, school. Abu Ishaq al-Shatabi, he's also a Shafi'i. He's also a Maliki. And in the modern period, Al-Tahir ibn Ashur, he's a Maliki. And then again, when the, when the rise of uh, Maqasid al discourse in the modern period, all non-Hanafis working on it. What about the Hanafis? They're content with the Hanafi Madhab because they already have it all figured out, right? So in that sense, innovation is constantly going on. What is happening now is, in the modern period, especially with the rise of the Salafis, uh, there was a reaction from those who followed a single Madhab. Uh, they're called Muqallid. So the Muqallid sort of dug their heels in. They're like, no, wait a second. You're going too far. We're directly pushing Quran and Sunnah. You're not qualified to do it. And you're basically creating an environment where everybody thinks that they can engage in do-it-yourself Islam. That is wrong. Islam has to be learned at the hands of scholars, and the scholars have to follow a certain methodology, and each madhab represents a methodology. So there was this reaction to it. So in that sense, uh, those who are reacting to this by insisting on sticking to one madhab, what they're saying is, we already have the final product, we don't have to worry about new ishtihad anymore. So there's an impetus there.